Welcome to the Black College Sports and Education Foundation weekly podcast, where we equip students, athletes, their families, and supporters with vital tools and information that will impact their decisions on educational opportunities and careers. Tune in every Thursday night at 7 Eastern Standard Time as we host prominent guests from a variety of backgrounds, such as education, sports, medicine, and the corporate world. Remember, the Black College Sports and Education Foundation is your one-stop resource center. Now here's your host, Gil McGregor. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Black College Sports and Education Foundation podcast. I'm your host this evening. My name is Gil McGregor. You know, as you have heard, most of our other podcasts have dealt with basketball players, Hall of Famers, coaches, sons of Hall of Famers. And you may have said, gosh, does all Gil McGregor know was basketball? Well, that's what Gil McGregor played, so that's why we've been leaning that way. But as the summer draws to an end, it gets to be that time of year that a lot of people, in fact, I might even say most people get excited about, and that's the onset of football season. But we're getting towards that time, and today our guest on the podcast is a legendary football coach, a member of the Black College Coaches Hall of Fame, a member of the Coaches Hall of Fame, having two undefeated football seasons at an HBCU, we have with us today the great, the legendary football coach, Bill Hayes. Bill, thank you for joining us. It's quite an honor, Gil, and it's great hearing your voice and talking to you again after so many years. After so many years. I remember something, and I don't know if you're going to remember this or not. Several years ago, I was on the campus of Winston-Salem State, and we got in a conversation just talking about football. And you said to me, you said, Gil, recruiting is getting harder for me. You said, because I go into a, a living room to recruit a young man, and I may be the only head football coach black that he's ever seen. And I went, what? He said, yeah, Gil, everybody comes to recruit him. None of them look like me. So when I walk into the living room, they ask me, well, who's the head coach? <laughs> and I have to <laughs> tell them that I'm the head coach. Do you remember that conversation? Yeah, I definitely remember that conversation, and I remember that experience. I noticed in the late 70s and early 80s, most of the guys that we recruited at historically black colleges had never had a black coach. Most coaches never seen a black coach. Most of the <laughs> high school coaches in North Carolina and Virginia and South Carolina were white. And most of the assistant coaches were white. And sometimes they may have had a janitor that became that figure for the black kids, but most of them had never really played for or seen a real live black coach. And it, it dawned on us because of the way they responded to directives from us. In a way, they would kind of look at you as if to say, are you sure you know what you're talking about? Are, are you sure you know what you're doing? There was a certain amount of doubt and there was a certain amount of confidence that it took time for us to instill into those kids. And we saw a lot during that whole transition period. And the same thing could be said for when I went recruiting in a lot of those homes. You know, the dad would always dominate the recruitment conversation. I'd learned early on 
that I would just give an introduction and say a little something about the university and the academic program and about the team, and then I shut up and listen. Because when you listen, <laughs> you find out who's going to make the decision about where the boy is going to school. If you keep talking, you won't ever know. So I would listen, and usually the father would take over the conversation, and mom might bring in some cookies or some coffee or something to drink. And she pretty much stayed out of the conversation. And so I learned early on that I should say something to get her involved, like the hours that the infirmary were going to be open 24 hours a day and, you know, the breakfast, lunch, and dinner and what times and what he needed to bring to put in his room, like some throw rugs or some curtains, and to get her going, get her talking. What I found out, and that was in the 70s and the 80s, but as the 90s turned and the mid-90s and the 2000s, then the less fathers I encountered when I went into homes and the conversation changed and the role of the mother in the conversation became increasingly more apparent. Mama, auntie, grandma was there. And sometimes an uncle, but dad being there became less and less frequent. So wow. we, that is an interesting phenomenon that you observe. That's interesting. Oh, no question. And what I also observed was early on, mom was docile. You know, she didn't have a lot to say. She certainly wasn't aggressive. But in those later years in my coaching career, in the 90s and the 2000s, mom was aggressive. And she, in no uncertain terms, let you know that you better take care of my boy. This is all I got. <laughs> and, and, and I'm going to hold you accountable, coach. Make sure that he's straight and that he's taking care of. Dad was concerned about playing time and whether he was going to get to play and what position he was going to play. Mama was concerned about, you know, where he was going to stay and how his room was going to be and, and whether you were going to have his scholarship money and his online when he got ready to register. She was concerned about business, and she was matter-of-fact about it and made it real clear that she didn't want no mess. You know what I mean? <laughs> and so I saw all of that change, and so – we had the tough job of convincing kids that we knew we were professionals and we were professional coaches and professional men and that we knew exactly how to direct his life. But that took some time for us to build that confidence. Well, Coach, tell me this, because in some of our conversations you and I have had privately, you made a statement to me that I've read someplace and then I've heard it from you and it just took on a new relevance when you said it. You said, Gil, I am a football coach. That's what I am, and you made the parameters, not all this other stuff. I'm a football coach. When did you realize that that's what you were? Early on, when I was a player, I had the uncanny ability to be able to guide and direct. I remember when I was in high school, Hillside High School in Durham, you know, that was segregation, and Durham High School was the white school, and Hillside High School was the black school, and in the county, there was Mert Moore. I went to Durham Hillside High School, the Hornets, a real proud school, a proud tradition in Durham, North Carolina. And we were good in all sports. In fact, we were good in all areas. Academically, we had kids that go to universities all over the country in Ivy League. So, so it was a real good school that prepared us for life. And I remember in a football game, I, I was a junior. Quarterback got, got knocked out. I had a concussion, and he stayed in the game with a concussion, but he couldn't remember the plays. 
And so I called the plays. I was playing tackle, and I called the plays on a long drive, about an 80-yard drive, and I called every play, even though I was a tackle. And so we got to the sidelines after we scored, and the coach was congratulating our quarterback, Butch Dooms, and Butch said, Coach, I didn't call those plays. Bill Hayes <laughs> called all those plays. He said, what? He called a plasy. Butch said, yeah, Coach, he called every one of them. And so I wow. I just had a knack. You know, I listened in practice. I knew what all the positions and what everybody's responsibility was. And so early on, I just had a knack, and I was destined to be a coach. Now, your first coaching job was where? My first coaching job was in a little town in Gretna, Virginia, oh, about 30 miles northwest of Danville, Virginia, in a little country town. And the kids were farm kids, and we practiced at like 1 o'clock because the kids had to, after school, they had to go home and crop tobacco and work in the fields. And believe it or not, we won a Western District Championship up in Gretna, Virginia. My first year, I only stayed there one year. And then, of course, I was hired by a fellow to come to Winston-Salem and coach at Paisley Senior High School. I coached high school for seven years, Gil. Okay. And the first college job? My first college football job was at Wake Forest University, your alma mater. I integrated the Atlantic Coast Conference football. I was the first Afro-American to coach football in the Atlantic Coast Conference. And so that happened in 1972. Wow. But that was your first coaching experience on a college level? That was my first coaching experience. I knew experience. you coached at Wake. I knew you were the sisters at Wake, but I didn't realize that was the first foray into college football for you. I thought they got yeah, you from a college. I didn't know that. No, I was a high school coach. Actually, a reporter recommended me to the head football coach. The coaching staff at Wake Forest during my tenure, all those guys were either from California or from out west. I was the only guy on the staff who was black and the only guy who was a southerner. The rest of the guys were northerners <laughs> and from out west and knew very little about culture, lifestyles in the south. Okay. So I did a lot to now, educate everybody. And when you left Wake Forest, you became the head coach at Winston-Salem State. That's correct. That's correct. I stayed at Wake, I think, four, four and a half years and then I left and became head football coach at Winston-Salem State, who had had a lot of down seasons combined. I think the year before I came, they were 1-10. The Rams were 1-10. And, and the year before that, they were 0-11. And so I took a program that was rock bottom in college football, and it was my job to bring that program to the top. But I need to ask you, when you say an 0-10 and 1-11, what – possessed you to think that this is a job for me what made you think i ain't figured that out yet you know i I really (laughs) want i really wanted to be a head football coach and as a matter of fact i probably should have continued at wake forest until something so-called better came along but when the athletic director told me to they gave me a raise at wake forest and told me that if I stayed, he was going to give me so much of a raise, I was going to be making a lot more money at Wake Forest than Winston-Salem State. But when the athletic director told me that I would always have a job and no matter who they hired as a head coach, then I would always have a job as an assistant coach, I knew it was time for me to go because I didn't want to be an assistant coach. I wanted to be in charge. And so he told me in no uncertain terms that it was time for me to go. Even though he was going to give me a promotion and more money, 
it didn't do anything towards making me realize my goals, and that was to be a head coach. So I left. Tell me about those years. Those seemed like they would have been lean years, but it didn't take you long to turn the program around. No, I guess I was a natural builder because we had no weight room. The locker room was shabby. There was really no interest in football at Winston-Salem State. Small crowds. And so I think one of the first things we did was took what we had, took the coaches and went and painted the locker room and spruced it up and tried to add a little class to the program and make it appealing to the student-athletes. And we went on a whirlwind recruiting. I know I recruited from New York, New Jersey, all the way down to Florida, as well as all over North Carolina. So I think I've recruited every day for three years without taking off. I'm talking about going to people's house on Christmas. I would take scholarships over on Christmas as Christmas presents, you know, to kids. They look and say, what is this guy doing here today? You know, Jesus. (laughs) But but I knew that it was not a good situation, that the only way we were going to get better and become a contender in the conference was we had to go way above and beyond the call of duty to get the job done. And I was prepared to do that and did it. And the reason I asked you that, Bill, and I appreciate your answer, is because we're dealing with situations now where HBCUs are facing closing their doors and athletics being a real big part of that whole college experience. And football seemingly becomes the leader of a school campus, whether that campus is Winston-Salem State or whether that campus is the University of Alabama. So to hear you talk about what you did, I'm hoping that other folks are listening to us, other administrators, other coaches, other people who are involved at HBCUs to see that it can be done and listen to your blueprint of how you did it so maybe they can pick up some hints of how they can turn their programs around and make their programs more respectful. So I appreciate your answer. Not only it shows what you can accomplish, but it ought to give somebody an idea of what they can accomplish. And we just did so many things to reach out to the greater community, not just the Afro-American community, but the entire community, to try to communicate, let them know that we played a good brand of football and we need you to come out and see us and we think you'll enjoy what you see and you can bring the whole family. We had to sell the thing. We had to sell the whole program to the whole community. We had to create the right environment for our student-athletes. You know, someone said one time, winning isn't the only thing. But, you know, you got to win and you got to show the fans and the surrounding communities that there's some excitement to bear and that if given a chance, we're going to win this game. So we approached it with a lot of zeal, a lot of enthusiasm, a tremendous amount of hard work. I mean, I worked every day, Saturday, Sunday. 365 days a year, I was working to build the absolute best football team possible. And believe it or not, we did that because my second year, we went undefeated. We won every one of our games. second year? Yeah. My first year, I think we won four games and lost six. Those six games we lost were real close. And that second year, we went undefeated. And we got some people's attention when we went undefeated. Well, tell me this, Bill, that you go undefeated in your second year. How many of those players on that undefeated team was on the team that went 0-11? You know what? Probably half. You changed a lot of things to change those young men's thinking, too. That's correct. And, see, the first thing we had to do was get a weight program started to build strength and endurance. And when you build strength and endurance, you build confidence. 
because strong, quick players are more confident gear. You know that. And so we put a weight room together. It wasn't the kind of weight room you see now. We did a lot of isometrics. In other words, you're pushing against an immovable force. You know, you can get okay. strong by pushing against the wall. You can get strong about tensing your own body for 30 seconds. So we did a lot of isometrics and isotonic. You know, you can sit around and feel sorry for yourself and make excuses about this and that and the other, but ain't nobody going to feel sorry for you. You know, you got to get out there, there and do go. the best you can. And so that's what we did. And the kids started getting some confidence, and then we won a couple of games. In fact, one of our early games was A&T. And Winston-Salem hadn't beaten the North Carolina A&T in 60 years. Wow. Yeah, we blew them out. You know, we blew them out early in the season. And, of course, then the momentum started. Then the community noticed. Then people started coming to the games and stands were filled. And and the enrollment started growing at the university. We started out with about 1,800, 2,000 students. And all of a sudden, we had 3,600 students. So it kept growing. Everything kept growing and getting better. Well, tell me in terms of your student-athlete, what kind of student-athlete did you look for, Bill? that you wanted to bring to the university? Well, in my mind, I knew the kind of kid that I wanted to coach. I knew how tall I wanted him to be. I knew I wanted body to look. I knew I wanted to be a physical football team. I wanted to play great defense, a strong kicking game, and strong special teams. I believe strongly in defense and special teams. You know, there's three parts to the game, Gil. It's offense, defense, and special teams. If you win two parts, you most time going to win that game. Teams, All right. If our special teams are better than yours and our defense was better than yours and all we had to do was slow you down on offense, we were going to win that game. So we felt like at the three phases of the game, if we could win two phases out of three, we were going to win the game. You know, you can always win special teams because that's a lot of effort involved. I know it's skill involved, too, with field goal kickers and punters. But going down covering kicks and blocking kicks and doing all those intangible things, that's technique and skill and will. So you can win that. You can win special teams with practice and repetition and effort. How did you bring the academic side of the university along with you to support your efforts to build up the football side of it? Well, first of all, you got to change everything you know, when you come in and you know you're going to win. So then the first thing I say is, listen, you're going to go to class. You're not going to miss class. When you go in there, you're going to sit on the front row. You're going to have your notebook, paper, and pencil, and your books handy. And then we're going to have study hall every night. And then I'm going to send out a progress report to teachers to see how you're doing in class. So all of a sudden, the teacher said, wait a minute, this guy is actually making sure that these guys do what they're supposed to do. And there are no rowdiness, no disciplinary problems. Kids are attentive in class. They're bringing in their assignments because they know if they don't do that, they're not going to play. I'm not going to let Amen. them get on the bus and travel. Amen. And so all of a sudden, you change the culture with everything. We go in the cafeteria. First thing I say, listen, I tell the team, look, first of all, my mother worked in the cafeteria at Duke University when I grew up in Durham. And those kids would throw food, and they didn't treat her very nice. Those kids at Duke didn't treat my mother very nice. Now, when you go in the cafeteria, 
you make sure that you say yes and yes, ma'am, to those ladies working behind the counter, and you make sure you get them the utmost respect, because if you don't, guess what? You're insulting my mother, and you know you're not going to do that, don't you? And so uh, we established that. So not only did we do it in a classroom, you know, you do it in social settings like the cafeteria and throughout campus, everybody saw a changed student athlete. They saw a different guy, a guy that they didn't mind spending money to come and see play, a guy that they didn't mind writing a check to support a scholarship fund. So I had a plan. You know, Wiley Harris said, one of my coaches, you know, we got to plan our work. But we got to work our plan. And so we planned our work, and we worked our plan throughout going to church. Make everybody go to church on Sunday. You meet me at the gymnasium in a dark suit, white shirt, and a necktie because we're going to church. All and right. the whole team. So we take the whole team. We go to different churches. People in town say, well, coaches bringing those kids to church. Then the church turns around and comes to the game. All you see right. what I mean? So it, It's a give and take kind of thing. So you start with trying to build confidence in the strength program. You start with the academic study hall program, the learning assistance that they can get. You tap into all the programs on campus to where you can get some help. You also work real hard with the people in financial aid so you can get some extra dollars to give kids. And so it's throughout. It's just not about that field. 80% of it's had nothing to do with the field itself, being on the field. Most of us is interaction with the people around in the community, the people on the campus, and all the extended services that you can involve yourself with to make that guy a complete student-athlete. Coach, this is great stuff, and I hope that other coaches and administrators are listening. Now, you talked about evolution, and you saw in the recruiting process how it went from dad's doing all the talking to mom's becoming a little bit more aggressive and making sure they got their two cents worth and they had their say so as the game has developed there's been a whole lot of controversy about the way the game is played particularly around that word concussion and redesigning helmets and and teaching people how to block differently and how to tackle differently where are you on all those controversies about how the game is played how it ought to be played well you know i came along during a different time old school You know, back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, we were taught and kids were taught to lead with the head, the helmet. The helmet was a weapon. Actually, during my era, I saw very few concussions. In fact, I can't really remember any kid who was dazed or out of control because of concussion. I guess we practiced tackling so much. We had circuit training in practice. You know, you tackle from the side, you tackle from the front, you recover fumbles. You did all those kind of little fundamental things in circuit training. Remember another thing, Gil, there was no parameters on how long you could practice. So we could slow everything down and teach fundamentals the correct way. Right now, you can only practice a couple hours a day. And so now they're trying to get in all this stuff that they've got to do in two hours and probably going too fast. You know, everything now in football is speed. We're going to run 90 plays in a game, and we're going to do this. And everything's about speed, getting in that huddle, getting out of the huddle. Everything's going so fast, and kids are stronger, and everything's going so fast, and kids are hitting harder than they ever did. And that's why you got these concussions. But when you slow everything down and you teach 
blocking and tackling by the numbers, by the steps. Things are much cleaner. Kids learn to tackle so pure. I can't remember a real concussion during my tenure. Well, with that being said, Coach, what about how old do you think it kids should be before they start playing tackle football? I think they need to start lifting weights when they get about 13. You know, they need to get in a good solid weight program at 13, 14, because that's when that growth spurt is taking place in their bodies. And so the conditioning should start in about 12, 13. And, you know, the big thing I always thought was long-distance running, endurance, endurance training. I think you need to do endurance training in January, starting right after Christmas, and it needs to extend all the way up into June. You know, I was telling my nephew recently, he's going to school to play college football. I said, do you have a clock? He said, no, Uncle Bill, I don't have a clock. I said, well, get yourself a clock. You know, stop waiting on Mama to call you to get up. You get up <laughs> on the clock. See, Mama do a lot. You know, God bless their soul. But, you know, when you go to college, she ain't going. And no, so she's not there. That's right. <laughs> you got to get up on your own. Your roommate, he might want your position, so he might let you oversleep. So you That's miss right. practice, so you right. get in trouble. So <laughs> so I was telling my nephew, get you a clock. The clock go off at 6 o'clock. A lot of colleges practice in the mornings. Most of the time, colleges are done more in the morning before 10 o'clock than most people do all day. So let the clock go off at quarter to 6. You get up, don't even shower, put your sweatsuit on, and go outside and walk and run for 12 minutes, come back in and shower. Now, that don't seem like a lot. 12 minutes is a long time to run. 12 minutes is the barometer for long-distance running back in my day for college football. So we started out with a 12-minute run, and once that kid could run at a steady pace for 12 minutes, his body starts getting in some kind of good condition. And then, of course, we do that for after Christmas until summer. Then we start our speed work in June and July, getting ready for fall. But kids break down because they can't handle the endurance part of it. You understand, right? Yeah. yeah. Their bodies aren't tough enough. But I tell you what, you said it to me, and now you said to everybody, you are, not were, you are a football coach. Ain't no doubt about it. Bill, the total number of wins you had in your career. How many? Almost right at 200, which puts me in the upper tier of wins in college football. I had 196. And the number of institutions where you coach? At, at two schools, at Winston-Salem State and at North Carolina A&T. But you brought the Eagle Funk when you played, didn't you? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, for everybody and you know who don't the, know what that is, tell them for me. <laughs> North Carolina Tell them what the Eagle Funk is. North Carolina <laughs> Central University. <laughs> Let's That's get it right cool. now. Let's get it right. Yeah, that's my alma mater. What I tell you, what we want people to understand is that thinking, planning, executing men like you developed at North Carolina Central University, brought their program to Winston-Salem State University, North Carolina A&T University. We want people to understand your origin, your roots, and where you got your discipline. The most influential football coach in your career was who? Probably Eddie Robinson at Gramlin. You know, Eddie was the winningest coach in college football with almost 900 wins, close to 900 wins, and he coached for 50 years down at Gramlin. And Gramlin was the apple of every coach's eye 
when Eddie had that thing going in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. You know, when I became head coach at A&T, I played Eddie five times. We played Gremlin five times when I was at A&T. And guess what we did, Gil? What'd you do? We beat Gremlin five times. All right, <laughs> we, beat Gremlin. we beat Gremlin five times in a row. But now Eddie was getting on up in age when we did that. And, of course, I was in my prime. But we beat Gremlin in the last game of Coach Eddie Robinson's career in the stadium down in Gremlin, Louisiana. Well, Bill, I can't tell you how much I have enjoyed everything that you said, where you put your program together, on the field, in the classroom, in the cafeteria, and in the community. I would hope, I would hope that people listening can get an idea, those young coaches who are trying to figure out what they want to do and how they want to have a good program. I hope they heard you. And let me tell you, Gil, we had a saying, you know, we're going to coach the whole boy. Now, we say whole man, but really, behind the scenes, we're going to coach the complete kid. Every Wednesday was teaching day when we brought in someone from home economics to come in and talk about table manners brought in someone from the community, one of the clothing stores to talk about how you dress for different occasions. Yeah. You know, yeah. we taught them that. And we taught them all those things. Every Wednesday at 4 o'clock, we would spend an hour just in teaching that guy what it took to be a man, a complete man. We tried our best to get him ready for the world. Life is the Super Bowl. That's the big game. So we were trying to get him ready for life. And in order to do that, he had to know if when he went on a job interview, he had to know how to handle himself. He had to know how to eat. When he went out, if the boss wanted to take him out for lunch to kind of size him up to see what kind of person he is, he knew what knife and fork to eat with and what to do with his napkin before he got up from the table. He knew all those little things, that table graces and social graces. We taught him that before he left. I remember a kid, my dad didn't believe in wearing hats in the house. My dad thought that you should never do that. I mean, it was disrespectful to a man's house if you had your hat okay. on. So I taught that. I taught our kids that you're never going to wear your hat in the house, you know. And it was always a hard thing to do, but we made them do 10 push-ups if they got caught. One day, <laughs> kid goes, one day after one of my kids leaves, he goes out to Kansas City for a job interview, sitting out in the lobby in a suit, but he had his hat on. So he gets oh, up wow. when they call him to go into the office for the interview, the janitor walked up to him and said, look, sir, I don't know you, but I'm telling you, if you go in Mr. So-and-so's office with your hat on, you're not going to get this job. And the boy said immediately he thought about the lessons that I had taught him and reverted back because he knew he was wrong. But it took a janitor to come up and tell him that for it to come to fruition. So those are life lessons that we taught. That's what a coach does, coach. That's what a coach does. And I appreciate you for being that coach. And I hope that you're still involved with young men and helping them to understand about the Super Bowl. What is Bill Hayes doing now as it relates to young people? Well, I still keep my hands on some aspects of the Winston-Salem State program. I'm involved with the A&T program at the Hall of Fame. I'm involved with the North Carolina Central program with the Hall of Fame and as a donor and as a resource person. And I'm really involved with Fayetteville State University, where my nephew, Richard Hayes, is the head football coach at Fayetteville State. I raised Richard when my brother died. 
I raised him in my home, so he's like my son. So I'm involved with him. I go to practice. I lend little tips here and there. And so I'm always around to try to help him be the best that he can be. Yeah, Nicole Skill, I told you I work with the Boy Scouts. I've been working yeah. with the Boy Scouts for 50 years. You know, for some crazy reason, when integration in the 70s and the 80s, Boy Scouts left the black community. All our churches used to have Boy Scout troops. Now, very few yeah. of them have Boy Scout troops. And the Boy Scout motto is be prepared. I mean, you don't need to say anything else to me. If, if you tell me that you're going to do something to get a young Afro-American male to be prepared for life, you said it all. And so you with, with that motto, I've been working tirelessly for 40, 50 years to try to get these churches in our communities to get a good, solid Boy Scout troop. Because Boy Scouts involves a man and a boy doing activities together. And in our community, there are not enough men that want to spend time with a boy to try to teach him life skills. And we desperately need more black males to get involved with our youth, to teach them life skills, and to teach them the final points about how to be a man. Coach Bill Hayes, we thank you for taking the time to be on our podcast today. And we hope that we can get you back again and when I get you back again, for some reason, I'm hoping that you're coaching. I'm just saying that. That's just me, all right? I know <laughs> coaching is a lot, recruiting is a lot. You talk about from, you know, one side of the country to the other, and you might be tired of all that, but the things that you laid down, the things you said are the things that our community and our young people and our young families need to be exposed to. So God bless you and all your endeavors, everything that you have done, everything that you are doing, and build everything that you're going to do. My Angelou said this, when you get, give, when you learn, teach, and you are mm. exemplary of her saying. So thank you so much, and thank you for joining us today on the podcast. Anytime you need me, I'm available, Gil, and I really appreciate you and all you've done in athletics. And listen, in all of your sports broadcast and, and your career, so I thank you for taking the time to put up with me for it don't seem like we've been talking about 15 minutes, but I guess it's been 45 minutes. But anyway, it's been great. Anytime you need me, Gil, I'm here. Thank you so much. To everybody, Hall of Fame football coach Bill Hayes, thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Gil McGregor, and we will see you next week. Thanks a lot. Thank you for tuning in to the podcast. For more information about us, please visit our website, at www.bcsportsfoundation.com. Also, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at HBCU for Life. That's HBCU, the number four, life. To be a potential guest on our podcast, contact Ed J. Hayes at ed.j.hayes at gmail.com. Tune in next week for another amazing show.